My producers directed me yesterday to a wealth of information globally about credential fraud, where you claim to have a qualification that you don't actually possess. You haven't earned it. It was described to me earlier this week as a pandemic in South Africa, and it turns out to be alarmingly commonplace. Why does it matter, say some people? Well, the reason people lie about qualifications is because it gives them a commercial advantage. It gives them a credibility they've not earned, and it may cause them to be chosen ahead of someone who's actually done the work. The issue came to the fore this week with the accusation that well-known economist and director of companies, Tabilioka, traded off a PhD which is so far, and I say so far, proven elusive. Stephen Logan is an attorney by training, but is chief executive of a verification business called Privy Seal. Uh, Stephen, welcome to The Money Show. It's, it's so serious, academic institutions are actually starting to take qualification verification into their own hands, aren't they? Yeah, Bruce, you see, what's happened is that it's very difficult with the Poppy Act uh, for journalists or others to verify qualifications. And so uh, these institutions are having to come up with ways, which we've helped them with, like Henley, um, to uh, verify these qualifications easily um, instead of having to go through the costly and time-consuming background verification um, process of some of those providers. Um, so they're taking it into their own hands, and uh, yeah, it's become a, a necessity, frankly. Um, and again, it wouldn't, you, know, you would be out of a job if there wasn't a lot of verification fraud or, or, or fraud in the world of qualifications. How do you build a system that can detect that somebody is telling a big fat porky pie? Unfortunately, it's possible because you've got to be able to have access to the data of every university, every professional body, every licensing uh, regulatory uh, body in order to do that. Uh, but what you can do is what we do, which is to offer a service to uh, higher education institutions like Henley uh, Business School, which um, uh, we've built a verification portal for. Uh, but we also offer the service of real-time digital certificates and seals that are updated in real-time from the data of the certificate issuer. So our seals and certificates only reflect if that actual certificate is currently valid. There's no plagiarism. There's no other reason for it having been withdrawn, whether CPD unfulfilled or a lack of payment uh, of professional fees or whatever the, the situation is. So... The reality is that, unfortunately, it is a very pervasive problem worldwide. And where there are countries like South Africa with massive inequality, uh, the people um, on the ground who can't access quality education are highly tempted, not to say that it's a justification, but there's a massive qualification fraud, particularly in South Africa. Um, and it's a, it is a real issue because it undermines genuine qualification. And that is a problem, not only for the genuine qualification holders, but for the education system, for the entire education sector, and most importantly in terms of the outcomes. You can imagine what happens on a board when people are, uh, say they have a qualification from the LSE, for example, and they don't. Everybody defers to that person. I mean, the LSE has got such a reputation. The, the reality is that people are going to make decisions on the basis of some presumed expertise that... Uh
And that is really um, because the decisions are often not carefully considered. The whole decision-making process can be shortchanged because someone is blaming qualifications they don't have. Okay, so now let's say I go onto your portal and I want to verify whether the CV I have in front of me and Freddie says to me, I've got a Henley MBA and I type in Freddie, F-R-E-D-D-I-E, but Freddie actually occasionally spells their name with a Y and maybe when they're registered at Henley, they put in F-R-E-D-D-Y instead of I-E at the end. How much variability can there be in searching for somebody's qualification if they've made a typo or there's a slight difference in name or identity? Does it chuck it out and say, Freddie, we, we don't know Freddie. Freddie's never been here before. When in fact, Freddie did go just with a slightly different spelling on the name. So with Henley, if you go to their website, um, it's henleysa.act.za. You can search under alumni, see there's a verification portal link. And what they've done is to take the high-tech um, approach where they also capture records, um, the name, the well-known name um, of, the, of the graduate. So if you typed in Freddie, for example, and they would have to be the, uh, the, uh, more than just Freddie, but um, with their email address, they will then check both the actual full name and the nickname, um, their records, and against the email address that they have. And if they can find an, a, a match, either on the name or the uh, nickname and uh, email, return the match with the details of the graduation. And if they don't find a match, which obviously happens, then they'll uh, specifically allow you to go and uh, email them. They make it easy for them to uh, go and search for you. And they obviously have some requirements of what you have to add them with. But um, that's the fallback position. Um, but they, they do uh, allow for searching on nicknames. Good. And then finally, I mean, you told me about this 10 years ago that you were going off to go and start a verification agency. And I thought to myself, really? Is it actually necessary? 10 years later, you're still in business. And I'm wondering whether or not it is possible to assess what percentage of inquiries turn back a negative result. In other words, give us an indication of the level of academic fraud that you've been able to establish so far. Look, we're very small. I would say that, um, you know, the size of the problem is that you've got to be able to really have a, a massive database of m many, many millions of records. Our database is relatively small. It's about, it's well less than a million records. Um, we do verifications for Stadio, for, um, for uh, Henley, for University of KwaZulu-Natal, for um, a whole lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, high education institutions as well as professional bodies and regulators and qualification authorities. But it's still only, I think, um, you know, the reality is we, we can't give you that, um, a, a really good population size to, to give you that feedback. But what we do know is that the qualification fraud problem is so intense that we get, uh, when we uh, engage with clients, we can see that the qualification fraud plummets with, the, uh, with each client. One of the clients way back when, um, about uh, four or five years ago, said that uh, they'd, they'd seen uh, eight people walk into their offices with false certificates pre 
uh, purportedly issued by them, and uh, those certificates were were rubbish. Um, so uh, the the digital certificates that are secure, encrypted, and are issued only on the basis of the institution's data have an effect of weeding out the false certificates that have previously been issued. And we and that um, is, um, I mean, that particular council and the built environment uh, went on to say that it had been a massive uh, uh, thing for them. So we're really quite convinced that we solve a big problem by making genuine qualifications visible. Thank you very much to Stephen Logan, who's the chief executive of Privy Seal, looking to verify qualifications. Well, well, earlier this week, we did speak briefly to Andrew Woodburn, the managing director at Amrop Woodburn Man. One of his jobs is to assess board effectiveness. Another one of his jobs is to place people in companies, either in executive or non-executive roles. And as the story was breaking earlier this week, he offered to return to our Money Show Explainer tonight to help us figure out why companies are finding checking up so hard to do getting on boards i think andrew woodburn used to be about who you knew what your old school tie was where you went to school whether you could be trusted as a reliable person on the board it should have changed with the king codes and governance frameworks around the world i get a sense that if you're in the network of directors and somehow somebody has put you on a board somewhere, suddenly you become hot property in an environment like South Africa. Good evening, Bruce, and to the listeners. You're dead right. Uh, I mean, in some cases, a blue chip company, which has a set of directors and that seems to be doing well, is almost a proxy vote for those directors to be acceptable on other boards. And Rightly so, because one presumes that your co-business down the road that also is listed has done all the right due diligence and followed the correct process to appoint that individual, and therefore, if they're on that board, uh, you know, all of that is done and they should be a safe bet. Um, and there is an element of truth to that, but as this pandemic rises, both at board level, but more worrying, I think, because boards are a relatively low number of individuals, but of course at executive level and managerial level, I mean, I think this is the lower end of the iceberg that we actually can't quantify. And your previous guest said, you know, the databases aren't big enough to even do that. So is there some old school tie network elements to board appointments that in my opinion are not the right way to go for many, many reasons? Yes, but I do believe it's reduced significantly, both with the advent of good governance codes and with the fact that chairmen themselves see that one must be very wary of making appointments only to find afterwards that, of course, then the board, the personal individuals, the company reputation, and the investor perspective of that company then get tarnished if an error has been made. What do you need to be considered to become a director? Is there a, I mean, is there a secret handshake? Is there a DNA test? What is it? Well, so our country is very interesting, is that, you know, post the transition to our new democracy, we obviously needed transformation. Uh, and unfortunately, at that point in time, we didn't have the volume of seasoned black executives and women executives, in fact, who were then able in the latter stages of their career to be put on boards because they had been excluded from our economic opportunities, let's call it in the listed environment. 
And so we had to look for uh, replacement individuals who could perform elements of the role. And in fact, in many cases, what companies did was they turned to individuals who'd been part of either the ANC or Struggle or in fact had commercial, um, uh, commercial skills to offer, but none of them really had any qualifications as such. Either they were short on professional qualifications like degrees, which we've seen this week to be under question, but, but so they, they co-opted these people onto boards and believe it or not, many of them did a really good job. Uh, the individuals sat on those boards, they understood where they could contribute and where they were short on skills, and they didn't venture into those parts of board deliberations where they weren't so-called qualified or experienced to do it. And it worked quite well for a while. But we ran out of that pool of talent, and then there was a demand for individuals who were diversity individuals. And, of course, there was a bigger demand for those who had qualifications, and it was one of the things that people could have that might make them eligible for board seats. Um, and what happened is we entered into a period where people were placed on boards who had governance knowledge. Now, you don't go to university and do a governance degree, so your question is valid. Well, where do you get this knowledge? So one of the places that's world-renowned is the Institute of Directors, but anybody yeah. can sign up for an Institute of Directors program and get through the, the program and be qualified then as being able to hold the fiduciary director responsibilities on the board. And so what then happened is we had a plethora of people presenting that set of skills endorsed by the IOD, but of course the underneath, the soft underbelly of their previous lives doesn't just disappear. And so we've used some of those people to very good effect over the years, but something else happened simultaneously. And that was, our economy has got into harder and harder times, whether it's recession or before recession. We've seen political uncertainty. And so what is now the trend, in fact, is chairman and CEOs themselves, who traditionally were excluded from venturing what they wanted, are now asking for more seasoned ex-business leaders who have truly carried the can, have scars on their backs, understand the nuance of both leading big business uh, you know, shortcomings, winning strategies, and so on to sit on their boards. But once again, we're in short supply of those individuals. Yeah. And so then comes this difficult pinch point where people such as PhDs in economics and so on, who may not have been a CEO or a group CFO, are looked at to fill the board because they are perceived to have something to offer uh, when we don't have anywhere else to turn. Give me a sense of how the board process should work. And I, I mean, I know it's a complex process, Andrew, but I'm going to ask you for your briefest possible explanation. Uh, how the appointment process should work, yeah. and, and I'm sure it does work in some cases. So King, by the way, the King Governance Codes are very good, and in fact have taken South Africa to a leading position on governance in terms of intellectual guidelines. The question is, you know, can we actually deliver on them? And so what the King Code said is that, first of all, a non-executive director position should be assisted through an independent service provider. It's not a rule. It doesn't have to be done this way. But the best governance is if the company comes to an independent service provider and says, these are our needs. This is the space we've got to fill. This is the type of individual we're looking for. And in many cases, that insight comes from an independently facilitated board appraisal, which you mentioned that I conduct. 
And the reason for that is that you then have an outside um, assistance on looking at how it actually is and that the board can't fool themselves into thinking they're brilliant. And, of course, we've seen the plane crash of Steinhoff when that board all thought everything was hunky-dory but then found they they were caught short. So the first thing is what does the board need, and that covers many facets, skills, the famous qualifications. And the reason for that is boards should be populated by a broad range of skills. You don't only want CAs or only want engineers, or only want marketers, or only want lawyers. You want sort of a spread across the skill set, and that's called a skills matrix. But in today's boards, we also have other matrices on the board around gender, around diversity, around ex-business leaders, around governance experts, and so on. And so our job is to facilitate the client onto what exactly are you looking for. Let's look at all of these boxes and determine the perfect candidate. Now, that's okay. all very nice to say, but you've then got to go and find the perfect candidate. No, exactly. But, and, Andrew, I mean, this is a fraught process, and it's a process that needs to be challenged. It's a process that needs to be interrogated, and it has to be verified, and it's got to be done in an objective and, 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 and thorough manner because clearly it's not happening like that in the moment, in 10 seconds. It, it is to a certain degree, and so I'm comfortable that a lot of our board, okay. the majority of them are staffed by good people who are ethical, honest and deliver what they say they are. The problem is when the tip of the iceberg appears, we then question everything, rightfully so. But I do believe rigor, process, governance, assessment is alive and well in South Africa, and our boards are performing on the stock market and privately owned businesses to the level that we expect of them. Andrew Woodburn. Thank you. Managing Director at Amrop Woodburn Man. And uh, also this evening we had the deep insight from the Chief Executive at Privy Seal, Stephen Logan. The Money Show. The Markets. We're not quite in a bear market, but the market behaving like a slumbering bear. It's in hibernation, and there's incredible lack of news to drive any kind of worry or enthusiasm other than the global fact that the interest rates are going to stay higher for longer because of concerns around inflation. But Patrick Matiri, the head of equities at Alawani Capital Partners, I think that starts to change from Monday when we start getting some real indications as to how companies did over Christmas, how companies did with their sales in the final quarter of 2023 and that should give us a better sense of the real state of the real economy yeah uh, good evening bruce uh, always a pleasure to be on the show indeed we should get some insights of how the retail sector especially in south africa did you know over the festive season uh, we do have some indication from the banks you know just looking at uh, for example credit card transactions you know, over that period that uh, we should, in a way, kind of expect you know, a bit of a downer uh, compared to the previous year. Uh, some of it, obviously, to do with, uh, let's say, things like you know, the old, sort of early discounting by some of the retailers ahead of the festive season. But, but we'll get the actual state of play, you know, when this retailer starts to report. And now we do expect a bit of a mixed bag. You know, obviously, there will be some winners and losers. But I think in aggregate, though, uh, there is an expectation for retail sales to have been a bit slower compared to the previous years. And that, that what strikes me as contradictory to that is the share price of Capitec, which today closed at 2,084 rand a share. 
Best price in the last year, possibly the best price ever, was 2,087 rand. So just three rand difference between today's price and the 52-year, 52 52-month 52 high for Capitec. Capitec exposed um, in the broadest sense to the real economy in South Africa. That share price is suggesting everything's hunky-dory. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those you know, that keeps doing well. Um, I think part of it perhaps is to do with, uh, you know, impairments uh, that appear to still be well behaved, you know, especially as uh, we are approaching, I guess, the tail end of rate hikes uh, with expectations of rate cuts to come through and therefore some relief, you know, to be had by the consumer. Uh, but not that, I think, you know, that space, uh, it's still, it's, in my view, I mean, a fairly constrained, you know, from a growth point of view. Uh, that uh, still inflation is very high and all the other costs are still picking up. But um, but I think, you know, Capitec, yeah, I think it's just got its own fan base and, and they love it and they're happy to, to pay even the multiples and from a relation point of view, which we do feel that it is a little bit on the pressure side. Thank you, Patrick Matidi, the head of equities at Aluwani Capital Partners on The Money Show this evening. JSC All Share Index um, in positive territory for the day, but down on the week time. Now, Karen Schneed, we are, have got you, I think, on the phone this time because you are hiding in the digital corridors of Neverland. Um, talk to me about being a serious lawyer in your time and how you had this wonderful epiphany that you should move from banging up bad guys or at least suing the pants off them um, to making sure that their pants don't fit anymore because they eat too many sweet treats. Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. Um, so my surname is pronounced Schneid, but close. I beg your pardon. No problem. So um, I was what you would call a serious lawyer in the sense that I had reported judgments. I had a big commercial career and I had a wonderful career and um, I, I loved being at the bar. It was a fantastic career. Um, I just had a, a passion for food, for traveling, and the one just actually overtook the other until I just, um, I, I always say, I, I came out the confectionery closet from the, the corridors of law. Um, and so in the beginning, I did both. I would be creating this brand. It was it was about the creation of Ulala and the products, but it was also about the brand and the little characters and a whole world that I was sort of dreaming about. And and then one day I was in actually in the High Court of Appeal in, in Bloemfontein in a very serious matter, of course, as I was there. And I was just dreaming about this little world. And I realized <laughs> I, needed to, I needed to take the, a, a little bit of a leap of faith you know, I did both for so long. Um, yeah. Of course, my colleagues thought I was crazy in the beginning. Um, but, yep, here I am. You went about it in a in, in a way that not many people would, I don't think. I mean, you lots of people have an idea. They just go straight into the kitchen. They've got a culinary bone in their body, and they manage to figure out how to make the nougat or the toffee or whatever it might be, and off they go and they experiment. But you went... The same way, I suppose, as an advocate may pick away the opposing counsel's legal arguments, you went in for forensic 
precision. You went and studied <laughs> history and chemistry of sugar. You went to France. You, you even studied Nostradamus. Now, we know Nostradamus is the guy who said he could yeah, predict the future and we should all be dead by now. But he had mystical theories on sugar. You went and looked at original manuscripts. You went into libraries and into archives. You actually did go a little over the top, dare I suggest. Or did you? Well, first, thank you for doing your research on that. I did, but the thing is, it was an indulgent hobby. It was never meant to be a business. So it was, um, I'm a kind of perpetual student, so that became about meeting people, learning cultures, and just delving into a world that you know, was interesting to me. So whichever lead I would take, I would go and learn about that. I mean, the one product, the Calisson, which was kind of a founding product, um, that in uh, the time of the plague, that was believed in Aix-en-Provence to have warded off the plague in that area because probably because it's got almonds and, you know, candied fruit. But it was so interesting to me. So the history, the branding, the making, all of it, Altogether, at the end of the day, I think became something that took over my life. But as an individual, each individual thing, which was never meant to be a business, it was just a hobby. And I think that that's why it is such a personal little company. And it's, you know, it's about what I love and what I loved doing. Now, you've been going for, what, 20-odd years now? I mean, you've got yourself a good track record in terms of this as a full-time gig. Um, you, you get to the stage where everybody gets to the stage when they make a success of getting too big for the family kitchen. You're doing, you know, you're, you're producing a range of products. You've got more than 20 staff. How are you getting your uh, sort of public awareness of the brand and getting your product into market? Because, my goodness gracious me, the moment people taste things, they, they become, you know, either they go, oh, it's not for me, or that's the best thing I've ever had, I must have more, and then the job is done. I wonder, but that that first customer getting the getting food, getting the, the the product in front of the customer is really hard. Well, you make me think of the story of one day when I when I just started, and as I say, it was just a hobby. It was uh, um, uh, didn't really think it was ever going to be a profession. It was a dream to make it into something and to create this thing, but it was it was just a dream. And then I would put it into uh, stores, and just the mere fact of seeing it sell was quite a thrill, you know. And then I would remember when, you know, one of my, my cases would stand down um, and I would go and deliver, I would take off my robes and go and deliver Nougat, let's say, or, or Calisson to the back of a, 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 a store. And I got kind of a thrill out of it. It was a different kind of thrill to... You know, what I had was like another world. And so in terms of my, and in terms of my, my kitchen, it did. It started in my kitchen with one domestic. We were just kind of out of work domestic that I was just, okay, let's just start doing this and playing. And yeah, then it, it grew, it grew. The kitchen became crazy. My, my law library became the packing room and, you know, it was time to move. <laughs> and, um, we, we we actually I, we have a very unique property. Um, very, it, you would think you are in Provence in, on the property, and I, I, it is my model. The model that I learned was from those little places in 
France and the, which are, are actually successful little companies, yeah. but they have got a, a charm to them. And I wanted to keep the charm. So we built on in our property, which it still is. It's quite a big property, but it's a little bit of a farm style property. And so that's part of the, the magic. We try and contain the magic here. Oh, it, it's just it's just wonderful. Did you ever did you ever struggle with the problem of sticky briefs? Anyway, let's not go there. Uh, Karen Schneid, thank you, the owner and director of Ooh La La Confectionery. I'm sure she never had sticky briefs. Uh, she kept the legal profession and, of course, the, the culinary profession absolutely separate. I was told I had to speak to her, and I'm delighted I managed to get hold of her. Karen Schneid, the owner and director of Ooh La La. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking, bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story. APSA is a registered FSP.